Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. All right, Daniel 7. We are, we are continuing our study of uh, the book of Daniel, and we are getting, uh, I mean, we're basically at the heart of the book. Daniel 7 is arguably the, the, the most important chapter in the book. Uh, it's also a pretty difficult one, but uh, I think that God is faithful and he will help us understand this today. I was preaching, uh, I was invited to preach this morning uh, at another church here in town, uh, United Christian Church, and I was preaching this same, you know, this same passage, but then I thought, you know what, here we have gone through the first six chapters of the book, and there's context, and over there, like, I felt kind of so sorry for them in that we're just like literally jumping cold turkey into Daniel 7. So I actually spent like the first half of the sermon uh, summarizing the first six chapters. And I was like, I don't know how long the, the pastor usually preaches here, but they're in for a, for a longer message. But they seem happy. People thanked me. So I'm glad that it worked out. But I don't have to do that here, although we do have some guests. But uh, I'm not going to go and summarize the entire uh, book of Daniel so far. Um, I want us to pray, and then I will, uh, and then we will compare Daniel's dream in chapter seven with Dan, uh, with Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter two. So let's pray, and let's ask the Lord to be the one teaching us today. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word, through your son, Jesus. Thank you, God, that we have the book of Daniel. Thank you that we can learn about your sovereignty, about your power, about your kingdom through this book. God, I pray that we would be encouraged and nurtured by your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher today that he would work in each one of our hearts and that we would be convicted and transformed by your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so in chapter seven, uh, Daniel has a dream. And the reason why I want to compare this dream with Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter two is because these dreams are actually kind of similar. They're not exactly the same, but they are a little bit similar in that they talk about different kingdoms and then they are compared to another kingdom, a more powerful kingdom. So if you remember, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he is really troubled by it. And he asks his enchanters and magicians and wise men to not only reveal the, the interpretation of the dream to him, but to tell him what the dream was, right? Because again, he, he, was, he was not very... He didn't trust them that much. He, he probably knew that they were pulling his leg sometimes. And so no one is able to, to, to tell him what his dream was, and no one is able to uh, tell him the interpretation of the dream. And so he is angry, and he commands that all of the wise men and enchanters and magicians of the kingdom would be killed. 
And that includes Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so uh, when the word gets to Daniel, Daniel, in an act of faith and boldness, before having the revelation of the dream, before even knowing what the dream was, he says, appoint me a time with the king, and I will give him the dream and its revelation. And so after that, he goes to his friends and says, all right, guys, it's time to pray. And so they all pray together. Together, they ask God for mercy, and God reveals the dream to them. And so Daniel comes and tells the, the dream and the revelation to Nebuchadnezzar. But the thing that we notice when we study chapter 2 is that this dream was for Nebuchadnezzar, right? The, 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 the one who received this dream and the revelation of this dream was given to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is different from chapter 7 in that in chapter 7, the dream, is, the dream comes to Daniel and it's, it is for Daniel and for God's holy people. And so some of the differences that we see is that in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the implication is that his kingdom is not eternal. His kingdom is limited. His power is limited. His power has been given to him by God. And therefore, the implications of this dream is that he should humble himself. He should acknowledge that God is God of gods and Lord of kings. And he has to humble himself, repent, and basically acknowledge that his kingdom is limited. But what does he do? Do you remember what he does immediately? Well, not immediately, but what he does after that? He doubles down. He cannot stand that in the dream only the head of the statue is, uh, it represents him. And so he goes and makes a, an image, the whole image being made out of gold, which, you know, arguably signifies like, you know what? I am the kingdom. I am this statue and, and my kingdom will be eternal. And of course, we know that, uh, you know, God reveals his power through the deliverance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then Nebuchadnezzar continues in uh, pride and self-exaltation, and God has to humble him to the point that he is turned into a beast, into an animal. His hair grows, his nails grow, and he just he eat, he's out there eating grass out in the rain in the wilderness until his reason comes back to him and he recognizes God as the God of everything, as Lord of everything. Now, in Daniel's dream, we have something similar, and we're going to do something different today. Instead of reading the whole chapter at once, we're going to be reading sections of the chapter, and then I will explain a little bit of that. But basically, Daniel's dream is given to him, and even though it's similar, the point of this dream, the message for Daniel is that the earthly kingdoms, although they are powerful and ravenous and chaotic, they are limited. They are limited in their power. They are limited in their, in their time. And everything that they have, their dominion, the, whatever it is that those kingdoms have, it's given to them by God. And the implications for this is that Daniel and the saints of God, the, the holy ones of God, God's people, they should not be afraid because God is seated on his throne. So let's read verses 1 through 8. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So by the way, this is bringing us back a little bit, right? This is bringing us back to around the time of chapter 5, where Belshazzar is still alive. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. 
Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to him, or sorry, given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on the side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that, they, that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So, talk about a crazy dream, right? This is... This is an absolutely terrifying dream, right? For us, it's kind of easy to just read it and be like, oh, you know, it's, it's whatever. But imagine like actually having this dream. Imagine actually having this vision where you are seeing these absolutely terrifying, weird creatures, right? And also imagine knowing, you know, if, if you and I have this dream, we'd probably be like, wow, that was a crazy dream. But hey, I'm not a prophet. I'm not, I, you know, I don't have any, any biblical historical significance. And so I probably just ate something bad last night, right? But I don't think this was the case with Daniel, right? Daniel knew that he was a player in God's redemptive history. He knew that, that the time of the prophecy of Isaiah, that the people of God would be delivered, he knew that it was coming, uh, of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, he knew that it was coming to, uh, uh, to fruition. He knew that, you know, he, had, he knew that if, if he counted the time of those prophecies, he knew that the people of God would be delivered. And so when he is having this dream, he is probably wondering, like, what's going on? What, what does this mean? And so he talks about these, uh, he tells us about these beasts, these animals that he saw in this dream. And so I want to I want to hear I, I want to give you a couple observations about this initial part of the dream, and it's really two observations. One of them there is chaos on earth, but number two, God is still in control. God is sovereignly allowing and even commanding some of the things that are going on on earth in this dream. Right. So we learn that there is chaos here. Uh, starting out in verse 2, right? Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So this idea of, you know, the great sea being stirred up, imagine being in the middle of a storm, 
uh, out there in the ocean. Um, I've never been out in a storm in the middle, you know, in, on a boat or something. I think if, if we had some of, uh, uh, some of our fishermen who used to be a part of Kaleo, they would probably be able to tell us a little bit more of that. But just imagine this ocean and this storm and just this chaos. But then notice the hint that we get that it is the four winds of heaven that are steering things. And every time we see heaven in this uh, apocalyptic literature in the, in the Old Testament, we know that heaven is referring to the Lord. Heaven is referring to God. And so even this chaos, even this storm, God is absolutely and perfectly in control of this chaos. And I think that if we are going to live faithfully as exiles in this world, we must firmly believe that God is in control. If we do not believe that God is in control, we will be driven to despair, to anxiety, to worry, to anger, to cynicism, to fear, right? There's all of these negative things that, that we would be driven to if we do not believe firmly that God is in his throne ruling the universe. So what's the deal with these animals, with these beasts? Well, if you think about it, it is not uncommon for kingdoms and nations to be represented by animals, right? Let's think about our time for, for a moment. I'm, I'm going to give you Two questions. One of the, actually, none of them are really difficult. You know my, you know my questions. They're not, they're not hard. In in our times, like in in modern-ish times, uh, what animal represents the nation of Russia? The bear, right? Every well, not everyone, but mo- most people know that. Uh, what animal represents the uh, America? The eagle, the bald eagle. Now. Just to give you a little bit of a, a uh, somewhat of a funny story before we dive into a not, not so funny topic, um, I came across a letter that Benjamin Franklin wrote to his daughter in uh, 1784. And in this letter, he actually kind of complains about the bald eagle being the animal that represents. Uh, this nation, and I mean, I think he has some really good points, but I, also I don't want to ruin it for us because it is, there, there's no way we're going to change the animal that represents this nation. But uh, I want to read you the letter, or, or part of the letter. He is complaining specifically about a, an emblem that was made by a French artist on a medal or something like that. And basically his complaint is that this medal looks more, the, the, the image looks more like a turkey, not so much like an eagle. So he says... Uh, others object to the bald eagle as looking too much like a, like a turkey. For my own part, I wish the bald eagle had not been chosen as a representative of our country. He is a bird of bad moral character. He does not get his living honestly. You may have seen him perched on some dead tree where too lazy to fish for himself, he watches the labor of the fishing hawk. And when that diligent bird has at length taken a fish and is bearing it to his nest for the support of his mate and young ones, the bald eagle pursues him and takes it from him. With all this injustice, he is never in good case. But like those among men who live by sharping and robbing, he is generally poor and often very lousy. Besides, he is a rank coward. The little king bird, not bigger than a sparrow, attacks him boldly and drives him out of the district. 
He is therefore by no means a proper emblem for the brave and honest Cincinnati of America, who have driven all the king birds from our country, though exactly fit for that order of kings with the French call, and pardon my French here, Chevaliers d'Industrie, something like that. Uh, I am on this account not displeased, and here, here's where he starts talking about the turkey. He says, I am on this account not displeased that the figure is not known as a bald eagle, but looks more like a turkey. For in truth, the turkey is in comparison a much more respectable bird, and withal a true original native of America. Eagles have been found in all countries, but the turkey was peculiar to ours. The first of this species seen in Europe being brought to France by the Jesuits from Canada and served up at the wedding table of Charles IX. He is, besides, though a little vain and silly, tis true, but not the worst emblem for that, a bird of courage, and would not hesitate to attack a grenadier of the British guards who should presume to invade his farmyard with a red coat on. So what do you think? Should we switch to a turkey? What would you think about the, the animal representing the United States, a turkey? Anyway, so that was just a little bit of humor to get us ready for something not so humorous. But in this case, uh, these animals, these beasts represent different kingdoms, different kings. And there are uh, different views in terms of, you know, which kingdom each one of these beasts represents. Uh, I think the, ma the main two ones are the first beast uh, represents Babylon. There's pretty much uh, agreement on this one across the board. The second beast represents uh, the, the Medes. The second uh, beast represents uh, the Persians. And then the fourth beast represents the Greek Empire. Now, another view, which is really similar, but it puts together the Medes and the Persians, would be that the first beast represents the Babylonian Empire, second beast represents the Medo-Persian Empire, third beast represents the Greek Empire, and the fourth beast represents the Roman Empire. I tend to lean more towards this second one, but ultimately, uh, I don't want us to get bogged down with that. I think we need to, we need to look at this passage and look at the theological truths that are found here. And I think it's easy for us to, you know, try to speculate a lot about, well, which empire is it and which one of the 10 horns is this particular person and the little horn is probably Bill Gates and all of that stuff. And <laughs> I don't think we need to, uh, I don't think we need to go any further from what we have in scripture. And really, even when the angel gives the interpretation to Daniel, the interpretation still leaves us Pretty, a lot in, in the dark. So let's look at these beasts. The first one in verse four was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And this one is, uh, uh, this one is clearly Babylon. The lion was the, the animal that represented the kingdom of Babylon. Uh, in other books in the Old Testament, I think as I say, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is directly referred to as a lion and as an eagle. And so it seems really clear that the first kingdom is Babylon. But notice, it is interesting. I don't know if this is referring specifically to Babylon as a kingdom or if it's referring specifically to Nebuchadnezzar, but it is interesting that it says that its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man 
and the mind of a man was given to him. And this really reminds us of Nebuchadnezzar, right? Where he was mighty as a lion and powerful as an eagle, but God had to humble him and eventually he was given the mind of a man. He was given the mind of a man and he was able to worship God alone. But his kingdom and the kingdom of Babylon, the, empire, the Babylonian empire was temporary and then came another empire, the, the Medo-Persian empire. And this empire is represented by, uh, by a bear and this bear is extremely ravenous, right? He already has three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, arise and devour much flesh. Now, one thing that I want to point out here, which, we've, which I've already pointed out, notice how God is commanding these things. God is in control of these things. God is the one who plucks off the wings of, of uh, the Babylonian empire. God is the one who brings the Babylonian empire, especially Nebuchadnezzar, to humility. God is the one who is doing all of these things. Even here in the case of the bear, God is the one that commands the bear to arise and devour much flesh. Now, this shouldn't cause us any trouble, right? We see throughout the, the Old Testament how God in his perfect sovereignty uses nations and kings and kingdoms to execute his will, to execute his judgment. Right? We see it all over the place where a nation continues to sin against God, continues to rebel against God. And so God appoints another king, another nation to come and destroy this nation. It's not, it's not pretty. It's not, you know, it, 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 it's super messy. But who are we to question God and his judgment, right? Then the third beast uh, many people agree that the third beast represents the Greek empire. And it represents the Greek empire because it is a leopard with four wings of a bird. And if you know uh, uh, something about history, you know that with Alexander the Great, uh, Alexander the Great basically came and conquered the whole world, basically. And he did it swiftly. He did it quickly like a leopard. Um, but even... Even Alexander the Great, his dominion was given to him by God, right? I, I think we're starting to get the picture. Any single power in the world, any nation, any ruler, their power is given to them by God. None of these kingdoms are, uh, uh, you know, none of these kingdoms have power inherent to themselves. It is God, the one who allows, in his sovereignty, he allows these things to happen, Now, the fourth beast, this one is, this one is crazy. In verse 7, there is no animal to describe this beast. And Daniel basically says, And then I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was, it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had 10 horns. And then uh, another little horn came out and, and uprooted three of the horns. Um, but the point here being that this fourth beast was extremely scary. There is a transition in Daniel's dream. So he goes from seeing this fourth 
uh, terrible, scary beast. He goes from this chaos on earth. And then just like John in the book of Revelation, he is shown a window into heaven, into God's throne room. And so this is what he sees in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So here Daniel is uh, in his vision is transported to God's throne room. And notice, notice the contrast here. While there is chaos on earth, while there is destruction, where there is all of these kingdoms that are ravenous and sinful and depraved and, and they are, you know, wreaking havoc. We come into God's throne room and he takes his seat in his throne. The name that, that we find here for God is the Ancient of Days. And this name stands in contrast with the, if, uh, the, the temporary nature of these other kingdoms, right? These other kingdoms, they, they think they have power, but eventually they are all destroyed. They all come to pass, but God is the ancient of days. God is the only one who is eternal. And he took his seat. Now, a couple of things that we notice from this scene is that God is holy, right? The imagery of uh, the you know his clothing be what, being white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames. It's all imagery of God's holiness. Again, contrasted with the depravity of these other kingdoms, we also learn that God is worshipped. Right, we see thousands and thousands and and many 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 creatures that are in the presence of God worshiping Him. And again, this should bring us. Maybe not back, but it should bring us forward to Revelation where John sees the heavenly throne room and God being worshipped day and night, nonstop. And then we also learn that God is judge, right? Particularly in verse 10 where it says that a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Fire is sometimes used in the Old Testament as a sign of God's judgment. And so this throne room is supposed to be comforting to Daniel and to us. Why? Because when there is chaos on earth, when everything is going wild, when all of these kings are devouring and, and, and they're wreaking havoc, God is on the throne and God is ready to exercise judgment. And basically uh, verses 9 through 12 are kind of a summary of, of the whole thing. Like it's, it's almost like it's spoiling of the end because by, by verse 12, we learn that the beast, the fourth beast is killed. The other beasts are judged. Their dominion is taken away. And so 
that's that's basically it. Like we could end here, but I think we need to ask the question, well, how did we end here? How did we end with the fourth beast being uh, destroyed, being killed? How did we end with the dominion being taken away from the other kingdoms? And so we have the answer in verses 13 and 14. This is how we got here. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. We are introduced to a new character in this vision, right? So we have four beasts. We have the ancient of days in his throne. And then someone new appears. And this one is not like a beast. This one is not like an animal. This one is like one. This one is like a son of man. And it is interesting that it is a son of man, because if you think about it, when God created the earth, when God created the world, who did he appoint as ruler over his creation? He appointed a man, right? He appointed Adam. He appointed uh, uh, Adam and Eve to rule over the earth that he had created. But unfortunately and sadly, Adam and Eve sinned against God and they ruined for themselves the ability to rule over God's creation. And ever since then, mankind has been trying to regain that dominion, but they have tried to regain that dominion through sinful means, through pride, through uh, uh, just awful means. And that has been an ongoing struggle throughout the history of the world, right? Where God gave dominion to Adam and Eve. They lost that dominion. And now there's this constant struggle where humanity wants to regain dominion, but they can't because no one is worthy to receive dominion until one like a son of man comes and receives that dominion. And now, of course, if you are familiar with your Bible, you know who the son of man is. You know that the son of man is Jesus. You know that the son of man is the only perfect man who was able to receive the kingdom of God, right? He was able to receive it because he was born without sin. He was able to receive it because he lived a perfect life of obedience to God. He was able to receive the kingdom because he obediently and courageously went to the cross to suffer as the sacrifice for our sins. He was able to receive the kingdom because he went into Hades and then he was resurrected as a way of the father vindicating Jesus as the true man, the true human who is worthy to receive the kingdom. And then right before he ascended into heaven, do you remember what he told his disciples in Matthew 28? He said, all authority, all dominion, all power, all kingdom, all authority has been given to me in heaven 
or all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he ascended. He went into the clouds to the ancient of days. Now, here's an, an important point, just, kind of just making an observation here. Usually, or sorry, not usually, but often this passage has been understood, this passage in Daniel, has been, has been understood to be referring to the second coming of Jesus when Jesus comes with the clouds. But this passage is not talking about Jesus' second coming. This passage is talking about Jesus' ascension, right? God is already in heaven. The ancient of days is in heaven. And this is an image of Jesus going up with the clouds to the ancient of days to receive his kingdom to sit at his right hand and receive his kingdom. This is Jesus' coronation ceremony where he is going up and receiving all power and all authority. Verse 14, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Think about that. Think about the contrast between these other kingdoms, these other beasts, these other creatures, and then the Son of Man. Jesus, the Son of Man, who ascended and received the kingdom from the ancient of days. His kingdom is everlasting. His kingdom is is indestructible. His kingdom is universal. All nations and languages should serve him. Do you remember that that idea of nations, languages, uh, and peoples? It shows up throughout the entire book of Daniel. This is something that other kings are craving. This is something that Nebuchadnezzar craved. He wanted to be worshipped by all nations, peoples, and languages. But this is something that only Jesus is worthy to receive. And so what business do we have seeking power or seeking uh, uh, protection under other kingdoms, under other nations? What business do we have as believers seeking our assurance in other things when Jesus is the only one who has received the kingdom from God? Daniel is still stuck on this beast, on the fourth beast. And in verse 15, for the first time, we see Daniel described as not as someone who is, you know, courageous and and, and brave and faithful. Not, not that he, you know... He's no longer courageous and brave, but with, with good reason, he is anxious and he is alarmed, right? In verse 15, it says, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed, alarmed me. And I think we can't blame Daniel for this because he didn't know as much as we know today, right? I'm sure that when he saw this vision of the Son of Man, I, well, I'm not sure, but I don't think he knew who the Son of Man was, at least not at the moment. He didn't know who these beasts were. He didn't know many things. And so he was anxious. He was worried. He was alarmed. And he asks for, for a, the, the, the revelation of this dream, the, the explanation. And so in verse 16, we see that. I approach one of those who stood there and ask him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of, of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. 
But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze in which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three, the, uh, where am I? And shall put down three kings. So here the vision almost seems to get a little bit more complicated because we are introduced to yet another or, or more people in this vision, right? We have the four beasts. We have the ancient of days. We have the one like a son of man. And now we have the saints of the most high. These are God's people. And, and one of the first things that the, the angel, the one who is interpreting this message for Daniel, one of the first things that he says is that the saints of the most high shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Now imagine the good news of this, right? You're, you're seeing all of these nations, all of these kingdoms, which are destroying and you are seeing all of these horrible things. But then you learn that the saints of the most high, that God's people, God's chosen people, they will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. This is extremely good news. And he's going to develop a little bit more on that. But for now, I want to point out a few things about this second part of the, of the revelation of, the, of, or of this dream. One of the things that I want to point out is that the fourth beast extends its power and it devours the whole earth. So, you know, whereas some people say, well, this fourth beast is the Greek empire or this beast is the Roman empire. Some people say this beast is actually a little bit of everything and, and it, it will kind of come back. And again, I, I don't necessarily want to go any, any further than what scripture allows, but it does seem to me that the power and the influence of this fourth beast continues. And it almost speaks of a continual struggle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. And I think all of us are able to see that struggle today, right? Where the division between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God is very clear. Where the people in power and authority are craving what only belongs to God. Where Christians are uh, uh, persecuted, where Christians are rejected, where Christianity is opposed, where God's people are fought against. And sometimes it seems as if though the beast is prevailing against God's people. And so I think it is extremely comforting for us to know that it is God's 
desire and God's will and God's plan to give the kingdom to his people. Because right now we're like, man, what kingdom are you talking about? It seems like the world is in control. It seems like Satan is in control. But we know that God's perfect plan is to give the kingdom to his people. And again, I ask the question, how is this possible? Well, it, it is possible because of the son of man. It is possible because of Jesus. Jesus is the one who received the kingdom. And therefore, all of those who are in Christ will receive the kingdom with him. Now, just three more things. Quick things. I found it interesting that Daniel is found anxious, alarmed in in verse 26, which, sorry, I skipped, but verse 26 is extremely good news, right? It is the contrast. It says, but the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my collar changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. And this, is the, and, and this, this was the last thing that I wanted to mention, how Daniel is alarmed, he, he is anxious, his collar changed, and he kept the matter in his heart. And I want to speak about our own situation. I think that we can identify with Daniel and say, wow, yeah, everything that is going on in the world and this overwhelming vision and the course of history, of course, makes us anxious and alarmed. And, and sometimes, you know, we just want to hide, hide and, and just wait until all of this bad stuff happens. But I don't think that that should be the response of those who know that the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of God and has received all authority. Right? We should have peace. When we are tempted to be anxious and to be worried about the course of events in the world or about the the course of events even in our own lives, because we know that God is seated on his throne, that Jesus is seated at his right hand, and that he has received the kingdom and that it is his plan to give us the kingdom, that should give us peace. That should give us hope. That should give us expectation, right? In Luke 12, 32, uh, Jesus encourages his, his hearers and he says, little flock, do not be afraid. It is your father's good will to give you the kingdom. Little flock, do not be afraid. God wants to give you the kingdom. And then lastly, Daniel says that he kept the matter in his heart. But for us, we don't have to keep this matter in our hearts anymore. Right? We were talking about Matthew 28, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and keep this matter in your heart. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing the name, in, baptizing the baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And therefore, I am with you. And behold, I am with you till the end of the age. We don't have to keep, keep these things in our heart. Rather, we have to proclaim these things. We have to be outspoken about the kingdom of God. We have to be outspoken about the triumph of God 
through Jesus Christ. We have to tell the world of the victory of Jesus. We have to exhort the world to repentance and tell them, you either go with the kingdom of darkness and exalt yourself and tr- exalt yourself and trust in these other kingdoms, or you trust in the Son of Man who has already received an eternal kingdom and you submit yourself to him. So let us not be afraid. Let us not be anxious. Let us not be alarmed, but let us have peace, hope, expectation, and let us be outspoken because our Lord Jesus has already triumphed. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he is ruling. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a perfect and righteous judge. We thank you that you will, you will execute judgment on behalf of your people. We thank you that your son, Jesus, the son of man, he was obedient. He went to the cross. He resurrected. He was vindicated by you and he ascended into heaven and received the kingdom. Thank you, God, that this kingdom has already started and that we have a taste of it and that we have the hope and the expectation that one day we will receive it in full. I pray that you give us boldness, you give us peace and hope, and that we would be ambassadors of this kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.